Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. Today marks a week since I've been in a calorie surplus for over a year, or at least a sustained calorie surplus. It's been a week since I finished my competition season, and I can say that I'm feeling a lot better. I'm quite a bit heavier, about maybe 10, 8, 10 pounds heavier, but I also have a lot more energy. Today's guest is quite fitting for that, in fact, because I have on with me Juma Iraqi. Juma is the owner and founder of Iraqi Nutrition. He's a certified personal trainer, and he holds the IOC Diploma in Sports Nutrition and a Master's Degree in Sports Nutrition. He also currently lectures in Sports Nutrition for the Academy of Personal Training in Norway. Now, Juma recently released or published a paper along with Joseph, or should I say Eric Helms, Sergio Espinar, uh, Peter Fishin, and himself, on nutrition recommendations for bodybuilders in the off-season and narrative review and this paper essentially looks at recommendations for bodybuilders for nutrition and supplements in the off-season which is something that we haven't seen before we have had a paper i believe in 2014 or 15 by eric helms and co on recommendations for diets but or dieting phases but nothing for actual bulking phases so this is a pretty great episode and Without further ado, let's get into the episode with Juma Iraqi. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. I really look forward to the topics we're going to cover today. Yeah, so before we kind of get into it, the, the topics that, we are, that we're going to cover today are really around this recent paper or review that you had released with um, Peter Fishin, Sergio Espinar, and Eric Helm. So nutrition recommendations for bodybuilders in the off-season. So when we're talking about bodybuilders, we mean natural bodybuilders or, or basically anybody who kind of wants to optimize their overall muscle size and not get fat right yeah absolutely yeah perfect so do you want to give you a, a quick intro or just you know 10 second intro into yourself and um, how you became uh, to where you are right now and then what led you to actually doing this review yeah absolutely so i'm uh personal trainer uh, based in Oslo, Norway. I have a master's degree in sports nutrition and the IOC diploma in sports nutrition. Uh, so basically I run a company called um, Iraq Nutrition where I do lectures for personal trainers. I do guest speaking. I do online coaching for mostly physique athletes. Um, and I also work as a consultant for a big supplement company here in Norway. Great, thanks a lot. So let's jump right into it. So this whole kind of uh, review was was simply based around, and it wasn't, it's not really something that has been discussed before. I know that I think it what, might have been 2013 or 15 that uh, Eric Helms, as well as a few others, I can't remember exactly now, but they did recommendations for natural bodybuilders for contest or for getting lean, but we never really had anything around recommendations for off season or building muscle. and. Uh, you know it, it's definitely something that we need because everybody you know wants to build muscle and most people probably need to build muscle uh, more so than they need to lose fat or at least that's the goal but we kind of don't really have a clear guide or we didn't at least of what the recommendations are from an overall point of view in terms of actually what's achievable because sometimes people they underestimate i guess what they can achieve but then also they they kind of think that they can gain faster than they they can if that makes sense so the whole kind of dreamer bulk and 
from my experience i know that i've been through several books and cuts and uh, not just inside of, or not just in the the realm of competing because i think this is my third contest season now since i was 21 so every three years or so but even outside of that i've done some cuts and often in between those cuts or deficits i'm trying to build muscle but most of the time what happened at least when i was younger was that i would just get super super fat and i would get to the point where it would be a cut a long cut and then after the cut i'd be like okay i want to get some muscle and then i didn't actually do a proper structured bulk or phase where i was actually gaining long enough to, to gain significant muscle because i would just cut and then get fat and then be like okay i'm, I'm fat enough now i need to cut again yeah so basically spinning your wheels in a sense by by doing that because i th- i think i see this this specific problems i see with a lot of people that maybe they start with too much body fat and they start gaining and then suddenly they're not comfortable with the body fat levels that they suddenly have because they gain too fast and then they do a cut and then they might feel that oh i don't look as big as i used to be because they're maybe have maybe they're a bit um confused about if they actually have sufficient amount of muscles or not because when you're bulked up it's it's um, easy to feel that way that you're maybe bigger than what you actually are so people spend like short times cutting and then short times bulking and then they're basically not getting off the the spot in a sense yeah actually just to that point i mean people don't realize how much fat they actually have in their body i think people think that they're significant they have significantly more muscle than they do even me who it's been my goal for let's say the last 10 years to build as much muscle as i can naturally and obviously like i said i haven't been as efficient as i could have with those kind of cuts and bulks but still with that with that in mind i've still been trying to gain as much muscle as i can naturally and even in my last or even in this current say i'm in, I'm in the middle of a car- contest prep i've uh, competed about three weeks ago i'm lighter than what i would have expected so when i first competed um when i was 21 i was, think i started my cut at in pounds around 210 pounds and i was pretty chubby but i was like when i get to 185 i am going to be shredded on stage mm-hmm. and now it's <laughs> Yeah, now it's uh, six years later and I'm 10 pounds lighter. I'm 175 and I'm still not as lean as I would like to be. So if you think about me as the, what people would consider obsessed bodybuilder, the average person, they think that they'll lose 15 pounds or or five to 10 kilos and they're going to be, you know, ripped. They're going to get abs. But in reality, that's not the case. And like you said, people, they'll lose a bit of weight and it'll be probably like, you know, intramuscular fat or visceral fat, which, which comes off first. And then they are getting leaner but they just don't see that subcutaneous fat come off and they're just like i'm just losing muscle and then they go and bulk again and it just becomes the cycle where they don't feel like they're actually ever making progress yeah absolutely and one of the one of the reasons why like initially this started as um the paper was actually an assignment that i did for the ioc diploma um, and Eric Helms is a very good friend of mine. Um, um, we we spoke a lot, and I introduced the idea for him that hey, there's a lot of focus on pre-contest, but there's basically little literature on on what bodybuilders or physique athletes should do in the off season. There's basically one paper that I know of from uh, Lambert, published in 2004. 
where they had some recommendations for for off season but it didn't really go into depth in the way that we did because we basically went into the specifics of um energy um uh, macronutrient uh, distribution timing supplements etc etc so we covered a lot of topics and one thing that surprised me was none there basically wasn't anything on this and considering that most physique athletes probably spend 70% of their career in the off season it's not really in 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 con- pre contest that they spend uh, their their time so i think it was important to get a paper out on this topic also because a lot of the nutrition practices often used by by bodybuilders and physique athletes they they lack scientific support so there needs to be something that we can recommend for this population which also takes into consideration that it's not detrimental to their health because if you look at a lot of the papers that came out in the 80s and 90s on on bodybuilders uh, they have very restricted eating patterns which also led to a lot of uh, um, deficiencies in in micronutrients luckily we have a new generation now that has uh, a better grasp on on variation when it comes to nutrition and they don't have this fixed idea that you need to eat uh, chicken rice and broccoli to get shredded you can actually eat a lot more variation in your diet and still get uh, super lean for for competitions so there was a lot of things uh, regarding that that make made this topic important and like we initially talked about um, it's not really relevant only for bodybuilders and and physique athletes it's also relevant for people that want to gain uh, like quality lean tissue and how you should progress as as you go in those phases because a lot of people they start too aggressively with their um, so let's say you start the first month of bulking and you're already five kilos up in weight if you continue doing that over an extended period of time like gaining 20 kilos in four months there's not a whole lot of that that's gonna be quality mass you're just probably gaining way excess of of fat mass which at some point you have to take off and in the process of doing that you risk losing the muscle you gained during that phase so the net muscle gain that you have uh, after first bulking and cutting can be significantly low if you keep doing that without trying to pace yourself and do this in a more um, scientific way yeah and i think that um this is a question that i got of a couple of clients before is like do you think that i can maximize my my muscle mass or or the gain in muscle mass if i push the calories a little bit higher and what my response would be well maybe you can get you know you can squeeze out a little bit excess muscle gain with an a lot of extra fat but the only issue is like you said when you go down to, to cut and invariably we've seen in in natural uh, you know natural athletes or natural lifters that you're you always are going to le- lose some lean mass and the more body fat you have means the the longer you have to diet and the higher chance you are at that risk of losing that that excess muscle so even if you 
gained a little bit extra muscle, the chances are that you're going to be losing that extra extra muscle because you have to cut the diet a little bit longer, and you might even lose a little bit more uh, than if you had taken it, uh, you know, in a shorter period. Or I mean, a longer approach to the bulk because you're just in the deficit for a longer period of time. Absolutely. So, with regards to, I suppose, lean bulking or energy intake, we always hear people talk about well it's a lean bulk i'm going on a lean bulk or i'm going to like a normal bulk but in reality it seems that the only way or the only thing that you can do is a lean bulk so the recommendations that you've given is a, a 10 to 20 percent increase in your maintenance calories right absolutely yeah so one thing i guess that i would ask is that as we start to increase calories and let's say someone's going transitioning from a cutting phase to a bulking phase their need, their non-exercise activity thermogenesis is going to go up. So they'll actually eat more calories, but they won't gain any additional weight. So is that just a, is that a moving average or how is, how does one kind of calculate that number? Well, it, it's basically a starting point and then you basically adjust the calories based on the, the target weight gain you have um, of body weight per week. So it's, it's correct what you're saying that most people when they actually increase their calories, they'll see that, well, I bumped up my calories this much. But by bumping up the calories, uh, thermic effect of food went up and you might um, started being more active due to due to neat. Uh, so basically the caloric surplus gets eaten up by the excess amount of energy that you're you're expending. So it's basically a starting point and then based on the target of weight gain you have per week, you would adjust or subtract calories from that based on if you're going too fast or too slow with uh, with the weight gain. So what I typically recommend is um, uh, most of my physique clients, we basically uh, coming out of a, a pre-contest phase, a dieting phase, um, we basically do things. We we cut back on on um, cardio if you were doing excess amount of cardio during the, the cutting phase. And we, based on how much cardio they were doing, we might just cut back on the cardio and increase by 10 to, to 15%. In most cases, I do say 10 to 20, but I do 10 to 15 based on the amount of cardio and adjust based on that. And then we start to do daily weigh-ins that we also do uh, pre-contest and we basically adjust based on the gains that we're seeing you like it's always expected that you gain faster coming out of a, a a contest diet and i think it's good to allow quicker gains um the first couple of weeks just to get you more in a physical and and, and mental state that is better because i don't think i don't think people that's never competed really understand how taxing it can be to the system both physically and 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 mentally by being super low with um with body fat compared to like if you let's say you were uh, a drug using bodybuilder you would have the hormones would be there so it wouldn't have a suppressive effect so it's actually more uh, in a sense it's more taxing to the body uh, doing bodybuilding competitions naturally because it takes 
a while to to normalize testosterone levels and uh, other various hormones there's actually one study that showed that approximately it takes the amount of time you were dieting until everything is normalized after uh, a competition yeah and i i think i i would agree and disagree with you on that one so obviously like you're taking if you're a unnatural or enhanced bodybuilder or physique athlete you'll be taking testosterone so that'll be there but things like ghrelin and leptin levels would still be pretty closely correlated to your body fat levels so i think right so if you're super super lean let's say five percent body fat and even if your testosterone like mine is probably tanked right now because i'm a natural competitor Mm -hmm. but but uh somebody who's like let's say they're they're using testosterone and um but they're they're leptin right they're still going to be starving and they're still they're still going to have these the drive to eat so i i can see on paper how the the approach that you take uh would work but uh from a psychological point of view uh do you find that it's difficult for people to to kind of stick to that because i know for myself and not just because i'm a natural competitor but like i'm pretty low calories i mean around 10 uh, 10 grams or, or 10 calories per pound of body weight so like i'm like 175 and i'm eating around 1700 calories but i'm also doing a lot of activity so like i, I track steps and if you told me that like okay next week we're going to finish our, our diet but all we're going to do is stop doing the cardio or reduce that i'd be like give you two middle fingers like man i want to <laughs> eat i want to eat i don't want to be eating like oh uh, okay oh uh, yeah sorry um it, that's not what i meant just cutting the uh, the cardio it was cutting the cardio combined with um, increasing the calories. What I meant was the range is 10 to 20, but if we're doing excess amount of calories, I wouldn't like bump it up to 20 right away. I would might, I might just bump it up between 10 and 15% and then cut back on the uh, on the cardio. Because it wouldn't make yeah, it wouldn't make sense to just cut out the the cardio because you would still like be uh, suppressing a lot of a lot of things um but one of the biggest challenges i see with clients coming out of competition is once they start eating it's very difficult to hold back on on the food like it just spins off because suddenly the body uh, notices that now it's more energy available to consume and it just want to fill up and you're basically never satiated like you just want to eat 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 so one of the strategies I do is actually I, I bump up the, the protein intake pretty high uh, due to the satiating effects of, of protein. And, and that seems to work with, I'm not saying it works with everyone, but most of the clients I've done this with uh, give me feedback that it's been easier to control their their eating coming out of a contest when, when the protein is um, is much higher. Uh, yeah it, com- it makes complete sense e- even when you're in a cutting phase right so um if you just simply swap out some carbohydrates for extra protein and all calories equal that can help with hunger so not necessarily for the muscle building effect so some people will say oh you know i'm already eating one gram per pound of body weight or 2.2 grams per kilo like i don't need any more and it's it's more from that satiety aspect than like mm. yeah but you you you're hungry all the time and you're you're binging so we need to increase protein but we still need to maintain a deficit somehow uh, so you keep losing weight but what what kind of levels do you bump protein up so what would your normal recommendations be and then in this kind of uh, transition from a cutting phase to a bulking phase how high would would it get 
Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the podcast with Juma Raki and taking some valuable information away from this. If you are enjoying it, please go over and do leave a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening on this to because it helps a lot with the algorithms and helps me get better guests on in the future and keep this podcast going. So without further ado, let's get back to the episode with Juma Iraqi. Um, I, it depends basically on how, how hungry the person I bought. In some cases, I bump it up to... Um, usually I have people around two, four, two, five grams of protein per kilogram of body weight in a pre-contest phase. I actually might bump that up to three, three grams in the initial weeks following the, the transition phase, just to keep, um, keep, um, keep the satiating effects from the proteins there. And then as at that slows down, we will slowly adjust proteins back to normal um, normal levels uh, one thing that we didn't mention that's very important to mention is the calorie recommendations that we gave uh, from 10 to 20 percent should also be based on how experienced you are so let's say you're a novice bodybuilder or someone that's never lifted weights again you can allow for a bigger caloric surplus but as you get more advanced, it's probably a good idea to to taper both the caloric surplus, but also the target weight gain per week. Because as you get more advanced, you basically won't be able to add on muscle mass as quickly as it was when you initially started lifting. Uh, there's no papers that I know of that basically looked at like, average amounts of muscle mass you can gain the first year but i know lyle mcdonald has some numbers on that uh, and a few other people as well and approximately what most of the people say regarding how much you can gain naturally for for a male is around 10 kilograms of muscle mass the first year you train and then half of that amount for every year after that so let's say on when you're on your fourth fifth year of um, consistent training you're probably not going to see a lot of gains there compared to the first couple of years when you were training so it just makes sense that the caloric surplus shouldn't be as big when uh, when it's not going to be possible to gain as much muscle mass anyway yeah that that sucks really it's not something that people want to hear but it, it, like like i said um i competed about three weeks ago at the the natural muscle mayhem and there's a pro division there and some of the guys on stage you know they they compete um and let's say five years in between competitions they, they're literally like one pound or half a kilo difference and these guys are you know touching their 40s in their 40s some of them so like, it literally slows down to an almost halt the the time you get like when, when you start to get like much more advanced and even <laughs> for me i noticed that the last time i got super lean was 2016 um albeit i am leaner this time but i'm actually 10 pounds lighter this time and if i was to say to somebody or if i was to look at myself or talk to myself in 2016 and say in three years time you're gonna be 10 pounds lighter i'd be like what so i i'm, I'm lighter by 10 pounds like that sucks <laughs> but i mean it's when you're doing this naturally you really gotta kind of have this stoic uh, mindset of delayed gratification 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I think a lot of people probably think that they're closer to their genetic potential than they actually are because if you're not an actual competitive uh, bodybuilder or physique athlete, most people are probably not in that advanced stage, right? So how would you consider or what what would define a beginner, an intermediate, and an advanced trainee? That's a great question, I, and I think a lot of people like disagree maybe on the way do you define it some people say well it's basically how many years you've been training but as you probably know there's people at the gym that's been training there for 10 years and they look exactly the same so i wouldn't go by how many years you've been training i would uh, i would go by um muscular development and and basically strength levels that's what i use to determine if someone is novice intermediate or or advanced when it comes to bodybuilders so so give me some numbers in terms of the strength because muscular development is kind of uh, subjective right based off like how your how your structure is and stuff um but unless we're calculating fat free mass index but like that just gets a bit messy with body fats and stuff but with strength it's pretty interesting i've, I've never heard somebody use that as a terminology for for like how advanced you are because because the power lifters some are pretty strong but not that big but um, in, the, in the general kind of bodybuilding population it, it probably does make sense so what would you what would you say for like you know beginner do you intermediate advanced do you look at like the squat bench deadlift or you're looking at bicep curls no it's basically the the, the, the main lifts and it, it it has more to do with the progression of of weights you've been do, doing over the years and w- like let's say if you let's say squats i would define somebody who can do double body weight in squat as somebody who's it's not world class but you're getting to an advanced level when you can do double body weight in in, in squats or triple your body weight in deadlifts for example but it's it, it's not like absolute numbers that if you're doing 150 kg in, in bench press uh, you're advanced it's more of the the progression from where you started and where you're at now that I personally use as uh, determined combined with of course the muscular development of this person and especially if we have numbers that we can look at from previous years and where they started from uh, initially yeah and I think that's it's great and it's something that people need to kind of keep in mind as well is that you know you need to be really consistent with this and making actual like you said it's not absolute pro it's not absolute numbers but the the progression that you've made so for me if i think back the last couple of years i haven't really had a productive off season where i'm taking it as serious as my my contest prep not that i want to be as granular with certain things like nutrition but i haven't necessarily always planned out my training and tried to beat the logbook and try to progressively overload and everything sometimes i just went in there and I kind of just trained for the fun of it and trained hard but not with the the goal of progression so um, so that's something that I'm definitely going to be focusing on but to come back to the the paper that we talked about nutrition specifically we we talked about that kind of 10 to 20 percent uh, do you think there's any benefit to going above that or after that is it pretty much all fat uh like these are like guidelines numbers so um let's say you're dealing with somebody who's really having a hard time putting on weight you can definitely go above that but like i said i i don't i think people overestimate how much or how fast they can build muscle so 
if you're planning on putting on 20 kg in in four months and thinking that all of that would be muscle you're really gonna have a, a hard t- you're really gonna have a hard time with maybe not just getting off getting the fat off but also be disappointed by how little muscle mass actually got gained during that phase um I don't know how your approach is to it, but what I usually do is I like to like recycle weights, like I call them. So we'll have, for example, if I have a, a person that's in the off season around, let's say 80 kg at 10% body fat, for example. Usually what I do is I like to have like three months where we focus on gaining slowly and then based on how much their body fat levels increased we'll have um, a shorter cutting phase where we can get body fats level to drop and the goal is to over time make those 80 80 kg improve better 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 for each for each time so usually we'll just have like a focus on let's say average uh, in average on average we'll have a target of maybe gaining five kgs over a three-month period and we try to always improve every time we're gaining we're trying to improve the quality of that weight for each time for me it's been more beneficial to do that with clients because uh, it seems to be that the the system or the body is more sensitive to actually putting on lean tissue because we're not allowing uh, body fat levels to increase too high Uh, the downside of having body fats increase too high is that you're running the risk that the nutrients that you're putting into the body if you're in a um, energy surplus that more of that is going towards uh, body fat storage so optimally i don't really like uh, people to be much higher like i put a maximum limit of 20 percent body fat in the offseason and that's pushing it if you ask me i much rather say to people like try to maximum get body fat levels up to 15 16 percent and when you reach that body fat level you should probably do a shorter cut just to get some of the body fat levels down again yeah that that makes total sense like insulin sensitivity just starts to get kind of messed up in the muscles and you just kind of everything if it's not going into the muscle it has to be going somewhere so you just get fatter but Mm -hmm. um yeah it's it's funny that you mentioned that um and i I see this all the time anecdotally that people they think that they can gain muscle a lot faster than they actually can but then when they see somebody who's taken taken it slow but has taken it slow for multiple multiple years they were like oh that guy's not natural he's definitely on steroids i'm like but he only gained like 10 kilos over the last 15 years how's it like you know you want to gain 10 kilos in one year you know it's Mm -hmm. it's funny that the way people think about it um yeah. I, I saw a great quote i think it was from lane norton uh, a couple of years ago he's like people they overestimate what they can achieve in one year but they underestimate what they can achieve in 10 years yeah so when so we kind of talked about the overall energy intake and and kind of the surplus recommendations body fat uh, you know the higher level that you'd like to get to but what's the kind of rate or rate of gain that someone should look for is it a couple of kilos per month or is it does it depend on 
your overall you know it's level in terms of beginner uh intermediate advanced we kind of touched on that a little bit but what's the kind of do, do you have any numbers that people should be looking at and what way do you track that we have numbers based on percentages of your your uh, body weight so what we recommend is a target weight gain of 0.25 to a half percent gain of body weight per week so say you're um, say you're um, intermediate or novice you should probably aim at half percent of your body weight per week but if you're on the advanced level it's probably wise to aim for the lower um, number so if you're 100 kg just for easy math uh, we're looking at a 1 kg increase for an advanced uh, bodybuilder per month to, to put on so the way i would track that is basically look at average weight per week like do daily weigh-ins uh, take an average of that and see how much you're actually gaining uh, per week. If you're spot on, you just continue with the the surplus that you have. If it's starting to creep up much higher than that, it's probably a good idea to cut a bit back on on the calories and 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 stay on the the target weight gain. Yeah, that that makes total sense. And just as a kind of a side note, I suppose. Do you think for for like our enhanced brothers and sisters do you think that you know the the weight of rate gain could be a lot faster for those i'm sure it obviously is but do you, do you have any kind of data around that or potential insights into you know, how fast they could actually gain um like there there is a couple of papers on it you're probably familiar with some of the studies from bazin have you heard any of those papers i haven't no i actually haven't really looked much into this research on uh, anabolics it just to be honest it's not my forte but uh, i do <coughs> like to kind of compare an actual uh, enhanced bodybuilding is my my favorite to watch just i just love to watch those freaks <laughs> yeah so bazin was a researcher that in i think it was published in 1996 where he actually took a group of men um, divided in them into four groups and one group didn't train got a placebo the other group um, didn't train got 600 milligrams of testosterone weekly uh, one group got placebo and trained and then the last group trained and got 600 milligrams of testosterone yeah no, if I, pretty, yeah I yeah so if i if I don't, if I remember correctly, I think it was approximately a, a, um, six or seven kilograms gains of muscle mass uh, during a 10 week period. So you're basically looking at uh, almost a kilo a week of gains uh, when you took 600 milligrams of testosterone with training. Interestingly, in that study, the group that got 600 milligrams of testosterone and didn't train actually had bigger gains than the group that got placebo and did train. So even when you're not training and taking supraphysiological doses of testosterone, you can see some, some impressive um, gains with that. Um, and just to put it in context, average male maybe produces about 
I think the average is around five to 10 milligrams of testosterone daily. So we're looking at um, average of approximately, um, like on the higher end, it's 70 milligrams a week. And then you have this group taking 10 times the amount of what's naturally. And even in like bodybuilding context, if you look at the, the pro level, like 600 milligrams is like considered a beginner cycle. It's yeah. not, it's not, it's nothing compared to what the pros are using, which are like insane amounts. And uh, I honestly don't understand how they're willing to take that risk with their help because we're, we're talking about like enormous amounts. And we've had in the last two years i think it's been three deaths of very young bodybuilders uh due to anabolic steroid use yeah i, th- I think dallas mccarver was one there's a couple of others as well mm. um i remember when i read that study first um I, now that you mentioned the actual the, the insights so I, I have read that a couple of times um but i, I was so shocked at the fact that the the, the group who actually trained with weights naturally so just they, they had the placebo they actually gained less muscle than the group who did nothing and uh, didn't train at all and they took testosterone uh, it's just insane to think how the effects uh, you know play a part in actual building muscle i think obviously it's 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 context dependent and you know your sensitivity to it for you know, people who their first cycle etc probably have bigger gains um I, I don't know but i'm just just throwing stuff out here it's it's uh like there's one paper that came out i think it was from Stuart phillips lab mcmaster university where they actually look at it's it has more to do with like the the androgen receptors like the more receptors you have the more benefits you would get from both endogenous and exogenous um, testosterone so what that means is that for some people like if you have very low levels of androgen receptors even taking anabolic steroids might not give you the benefits that you really want due to the fact uh, one thing that super physiological doses of testosterone does is in excessive amounts the body actually make more androgen receptors due to the fact that there's more testosterone circulating in in the body but um, that's why some people see very good results with very small amounts and some people can take huge amounts and even then not see the results what they want uh, Bazin actually did a follow-up study in 2001 uh, which was dose response of testosterone and the increases in strength and muscle mass and basically what the paper concluded was that the higher amount of testosterone you're taking the bigger the gains are they saw i think they compared um they compared placebo 25 milligrams 50 milligrams 125 milligrams 300 milligrams and 600 milligrams and the higher the dosage the higher the gains basically was what was said or what was concluded in that paper there you go folks you heard it all the <laughs> up the dose <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say say um, say that uh, i think one of the i think one of the things that a lot of people that are considering using this don't take into consideration is we don't really have a lot of uh, research on the long-term effect it has psychologically. So it's it basically like when smoking first came out, we didn't really have 
a lot of research on the negative effects of smoking but as the year went as the as the year went on they finally found out that it's actually having a lot of negative effects on our health but uh, recently there's been more research coming out of actually Norway doing research on the effects of anabolic steroids and the effects that it has on their on the brain because now we have a generation that's been using steroids since the 80s and 90s and where they actually had the opportunity to to, to do MRI scans of of their of their brains and look at uh, of the structure of the brain and there's some pretty concerning findings from from that study uh, that can have long-term significant negative effects on mental health and and other related uh, brain diseases and these usually don't come after a couple of years of of drug use they usually come after sufficient amounts over extended period of time but i think that area hasn't got um a lot of attention uh, and cardiovascular disease and other stuff has gotten a lot more attention but that's also a concern for for people that are using um illegally anabolic steroids yeah i mean we just like you said we just don't have the data there because it's illegal in a lot of countries we it's hard to to do those those studies kind of like with class a drugs Mm. like heroin and cocaine and stuff just Mm -hmm. just because of its uh you know controlled substances it's just harder to to kind of do it but um i think we're kind of getting a bit off topic turning this into (laughs) a pharmacology (laughs) pharmacology uh podcast but but when we go back to the recommendations for nutrition um when it comes to specific macronutrient breakdown, do you have any recommendations or do you think that, besides the protein obviously, but do you think that, like this study that we had, I think it was last year like out of Stanford with Gartner, where they did a weight loss study or a fat loss study and they just like low carb versus low fat with match protein and calories and they pretty much had the same results. Would you say that's the same for muscle building or do you have specific recommendations around carbs and fats for muscle building to, to optimize that? Great question. So what we've recommended in our paper is for protein aiming for 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of, of body weight for protein and fats we've actually recommended to consume in a moderate amounts, which is 0.5 to 1.5 grams per kilogram of body weight and there's a couple of reasons for that but i think a lot of people overemphasize the effects that dietary fats has on optimizing testosterone levels because if you actually look at the research it 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 seems that it has more to do with available body fat on the body and less to do with uh, the amount of of um, fat that you're consuming and even if you like push the fats really high you're basically looking at very insignificant gains or increases in natural testosterone levels which really doesn't mean anything if you're looking to to gain muscle mass so one of the negative effects of consuming really high fat diets especially if you do it around your training is it seems to have negative effects on on signaling pathways that has to do with remodeling of skeletal muscle but it also seems to 
lower um, insulin sensitivity so basically you don't um, utilize carbohydrates as optimally as you, you should if you're consuming huge amounts of fats i actually did um, a cycling study I think it's two years ago or now where we had uh, like high level cyclist which was super lean and we basically gave them um, a protein and carbohydrate uh, matched uh, diets one of the group was doing we glycogen depleted them and then we basically gave them a different amount of energy so protein and carbohydrate was matched one of the groups got 30 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass and the other got 10 so a big difference in energy intake but what we saw in that study was that when we measured um, their um, blood sugar levels at diff eight different time points the high fat groups actually had um, signs of um, insulin resistance due to the high fat diets that they were consuming and we also did um, some biopsies uh, muscle biopsies which also showed that consuming high fat diets especially around training is probably not a good idea if you're trying to optimize insulin um, sensitivity so based on the fact that there seems to be more benefits for um, for physique athletes with higher carbohydrates intake we based our recommendations on a moderate amount of fats which would allow for more focus on consuming sufficient amounts of carbohydrates um, the paper actually recommends or we basically recommend in our paper that when once you've taken your calories divided appropriate amount to protein and fats remaining calories should come from carbohydrate but you should also focus on consuming sufficient amounts which we define from three to five grams per kilogram of body weight uh, a lot of people overestimate the amount of carbohydrates that they need um, based on the training sessions that they do a lot of people think that oh if you do a training session you've completely depleted your glycogen stores after that session and you need huge amounts of of carbohydrates that's not true if if you look at some of the some of the paper from um, from Tesh and McDougall that came out in the 80s and in, in the 90s there is there's actually one study from Tesh where he had participants do four different exercises i think they did back squats front squats leg extensions leg uh, leg press five sets for each exercise and all sets was taken to failure and after that session they measured muscle glycogen in in the quadriceps and there was like between a 24 and 40 percent drop of of glycogen stores so still plenty of glycogen available um, after that but if you compare that to endurance sports you can probably deplete a, a cyclist if they did a really hard uh, interval sessions for for two hours they would be completely depleted of, of glycogen stores because people forget that when you do resistance training you do a lot of 
um, you do have a lot of breaks between your sets. And when you do that, you can recycle a lot of things which can then be resynthesized to glycogen. Yeah, I think on top of that as well, often a lot of the exercises that you do, especially in the lower reps, you're not actually using that glycotic pathway. You're using, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the ATP that's stored within the muscle already. So you're doing explosive work that doesn't even necessarily require that much glycogen. You're using the, the creatine phosphate energy mm-hmm. pathway. So, uh, you know, maybe if you're doing super, super high reps and super, super high volume, that might you know increase that um, glycogen depletion a little bit but uh, it's it's not to do the point where people would actually uh, think or would hope because i think most people that do bulk they, they want to hear that you know you got to eat a lot of food and that you can get away with eating a ton of calories and uh, i certainly want to hear that i don't i certainly <laughs> don't want to hear that a 10 percent increase in my calories is going to be sufficient i want to go into one of those dreamer bulks again but unfortunately you know, naturally it's it's just not possible but mm-hmm. do you have any uh, recommendations then, um, I suppose, with around the workout, you've touched a little bit around uh, trying to limit fat intake, but with regards to uh, protein timing and carbohydrate timing, do you have any preferences or, or is the, the paper specifically, I think it touched on uh, three to six protein feedings, and that would be kind of in line with what we, what we kind of would believe at the moment, but do you still believe that um, overall intake for the day is going to be most important? Yeah, when you when you start to like prioritize different things, like overall what you consume during the day is the most important thing. But if you're looking to like optimize things, like I think some of the papers regarding timing that's come out the last couple of years um, has been maybe misunderstood by a lot of people because some of the papers say that well, it's not necessary to consume nutrients uh, post-workout you can like have one to two hours pre and post training and that would be sufficient but on the other hand it's not like it's going to be detrimental if you actually consume nutrients uh, right after your training session so the more advanced you are it's probably going to be more important to consume nutrients uh, right after your training session and that's basically due to the fact that MPS seems to be shorter, like it's a shorter time frame after a training session where you're in uh, a muscle building state. So it just makes sense that taking advantage of that and consuming nutrients as fast as possible after a training session might be a good idea. But for the general population, like having a meal one to two hours pre-training and within one to two hours post-training is a good uh, recommendation to give. But again, there's no reason to wait to consume nutrients after um, a training session. It's not going to be negative for your results. Uh, What I do with fats is, depending on how far you are from your training session, I allow more fats the further the meal is from the training session. So usually I'll say, okay, if you're going to consume a meal that's going to be one to two hours before the training session, it's a good idea not to only consume something that is low in fat, but also low in fiber and also something that is easily digestible. Some people have this idea in their head that um, if you eat 
chicken, rice, and, and vegetables two hours before a training session, and then you train for an hour that you're in a catabolic state because it's three hours since you last ate. That's chicken and rice and veg vegetable you ate three hours ago. It's probably just started to digest and come out in your bloodstream. So if you want something that's gonna give you a benefit before the training session, it's probably a good idea if you're consuming it that close to the training session, consume something that's easily uh, digestible, uh, especially when it comes to um, carbohydrates. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, like you said, people think that uh, the, the anabolic pre and post workout window is, is a lot more important than especially is, especially when you're eating whole foods. So maybe, but probably not, it would have uh, more significance if you're eating maybe faster digesting uh, foods like whey protein but still mm. within that within that context itself i think that um still a couple of hours it's not going to make any difference because by the time that like the the food gets through the, the system and starts to break down into small intestine and then into the bloodstream and and you know your workout is probably like an hour long so it's probably just peaking towards the end of your workout and you don't necessarily need to have that shake in the in the locker room post-workout or like i mentioned before with alan aragon those people who have the the tuna in the change rooms they absolutely drive me crazy you know stink up the whole change <laughs> rooms just for the, the the fact that they think they need to get it in within that certain window yeah and i think it's more important to get nutrients in as quickly as possible like i said if if you're advanced trying to maximize your gains if you're training in a fasted state uh, or if you're training multiple sessions a day it's probably a good good idea to do that but it's not that critical if you consumed a meal um, within two hours before the training session it's not gonna be um, a problem so it's so the general recommendations kind of spread your meals out three to six meals try and keep fats uh, limited or at least lower around your workouts and you can have higher fat meals uh, throughout the rest of the day and and protein i guess evenly spread across those days or meals i mean yep and uh I, in one thing that you touched on in the paper as well is the quality of the protein so um you know a full spectrum of amino acids can you touch a little bit on that yeah absolutely um there's been this um idea that plant-based protein is um, inferior to to animal-based protein you get more bang for your buck when when you're consuming like high quality protein from from uh, from dairy for example like like um, whey protein but soy protein also has um, all the essential amino acids but it's in a lower amount per gram compared to dairy so, but one thing is that all of the studies, when they compare plant-based and animal-based, they're using the same amounts. But if you were to consume plant-based protein and you increase the amounts a little bit, there's basically no difference in the response that you get for, for MPS. So generally, if I work with, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that I have a lot of vegan clients, but they have, I've had some vegan clients 
And my general recommendation is if you're um, vegan, uh, it's probably a good idea to bump up uh, the protein, the, the total protein that you're consuming uh, during the day. And generally I say bump it up by 15 to 20% on what I would generally recommend. Yeah, so so it's not going to be that significant unless you're, you know, e- even if you are eating the same amount of protein, it's probably not going to have that much a difference unless you're like a physique athlete and really want to maximize, um, you know, that muscle protein synthesis. It, it it's not going to make a, a huge difference. And again, when when you're consuming like mixed meals. A lot of the studies they they don't use like they don't use mixed meals with different sources. They usually do isolated proteins and then compare that. But the studies that have adjusted for the amounts for plant-based protein do do show that as long as you increase the amounts a bit, um, it basically has the same same effect. So basically, just eat more of the plant-based protein, and you would get similar effects than similar effect as the animal-based proteins. Okay, got it. Good stuff. And then the final question I have is around supplementation, which often people put, uh, you know, as the as the number one priority, which needs to be probably pushed down a lot further than people think. But what would your general recommendations be? um for supplementation for bulking and and are they any different for bulking and cutting or are they pretty much the same uh it's it's pretty much the same to be honest a lot of people ask when it comes to to pre-contest about um fat loss supplements but what you find on the market that's legal is basically a waste of money to be honest Uh, caffeine do have some effects that can be uh, beneficial for for fat load but there's really no difference in in what recommendations we have for supplements uh, for pre-contest compared to the off-season um, if I were to like mention supplements that would be of uh, like now we're talking about performance um, benefits definitely creatine monohydrate not only does it help with with um, with with strength levels, it also has a lot of benefits uh, on the, the cellular levels for remodeling of skeletal muscle that can be um, beneficial. And you don't need a huge amount of um, of creatine. Like a lot of people, they say, "Well, I'm I'm a big guy, so I'm going to take 10 grams of creatine monohydrate every day." That's a complete waste. There's been a paper by I think it's Willoughby's lab that did this one which actually showed that up to 100 kg 3 grams seems to be more than sufficient to um, satiate creatine phosphate levels in the body so 3 grams if you're above 100 kg maybe bump that up to 4 or 5 so 3 to 5 grams should be sufficient for for most people Um, Caffeine is also a supplement that um, is very beneficial. The funny thing with caffeine is that when you look at um, dietary supplements, um, they have often benefits specific for different um, sports and exercises. But caffeine seems to be universal. So basically all physical activity that you do, you would see a benefit from caffeine. 
if you're doing endurance, if you're doing strength, you see benefits on a lot of different sports. Uh, when it comes to recommendations for caffeine intake, it does seem to be beneficial if you use it on the higher end of the recommendation, which we recommend in our paper, aiming for five to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight consumed approximately one hour before your uh, training session. So it does seem to have a good effect on uh, power output, but also delaying the onset of fatigue when, when you're training. So those would be my go-to supplements for performance. Beta-alanine and citrulline malate we have recommended in our paper uh, as supplements that can potentially be beneficial depending on, on if we start with beta-alanine. So basically what beta-alanine does in the body is when it's consumed, you increase the stores of uh, carnosine, which act as a pH buffer in the muscle. So basically what that means is as you're doing your repetitions and you're building up lactate, beta-alanine would uh, maybe give you a couple of extra reps before that lactate kicks in and and um, burns in your in your muscle. Um, so, based on how you train, if you if you do bodybuilding training with a lot of repetitions, like 10 plus repetition potentially it can have a benefit um, citrulline is the newest supplement that's gotten a lot of focus in the fitness industry and what it basically does it increases uh, nit nitric oxide production in the body which increases um, bloodstream to the muscle some studies have showed that you get potentially more strength and increased repetitions while you train. The latest meta-analysis -ana on that topic, I think it was from Trexler, um, Trexler and colleagues. Yeah, Eric, and, and Eric it, Trexler, yeah. Yeah, it came out this, uh, this year. And basically what they concluded with was that potentially it can have... Um, a small benefit but it does seem to have um, more of a benefit for high level competitive bo uh, bodybuilders that are looking for like these small edges and, and advantages to to maximize their results so it does seem to have more of a benefit for people that are on on a on a higher level so it wouldn't necessarily be like if, if you're limited on, on cash, I would definitely just stick with creatine, monohydrate, and caffeine. If you have the extra money, you can give beta-alanine and citrulline mallet a, a try and see if you're getting any benefits from that. Yeah, I think personally I've tried citrulline a number of times. And to be honest, just with the, the dosages that you need and the, the cost, I it just felt that I'd rather spend my money elsewhere considering the limited effects that I've got. I've noticed a little bit of maybe, you know, a pump, but nothing significant to the point where, uh, you know, I'm going to consistently take it. So personally, I, I don't actually take citrulline or beta-alanine because after having tried them a couple of times, I'm just not feeling like I, I actually get the benefits from them. So I, I guess, like you said, that it has that small effects and 
it's probably nowhere near as much as the return on investment you can get from taking caffeine and creatine, which are also way more or way less expensive. Yeah, it's basically nothing um, to buy creatine monohydrate and 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 caffeine. And I would like to add that there's been studies comparing monohydrate to other different forms of creatine. Um, uh, creatine ethyl ester, creacline, and um, I think there was another study that compared monohydrate to. I can't remember the form of creatine that, but I think it might have been creatine HCl or something like that. Hydrochloride. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That might be correct. Um, and all of them conclude with the same that there's basically no benefits of the other creatine forms compared to creatine monohydrate. Uh, it, the papers doesn't say that um, crealkaline is worse than creatine monohydrate, but you're not really seeing any benefits from, from using that compare. And there's a huge price difference. The only creatine form that I would stay clear of is uh, creatine ethyl ester that's actually been shown to convert more to creatinine, which is the byproduct when creatine is broken down. And that's not a good thing because it's uh, taxing on, uh, on the kidneys. So that's something I would definitely stay clear of. However, um, I don't have research to back this up, but some of the guys that I have uh, get digestive issues, GI upset from taking monohydrate, and when we've switched them over to creacoline, uh, which is basically monohydrate and baking soda, uh, they seem to stomach that better. That's the only case scenario where I actually recommend a different form is if you're having issues with creatine monohydrate the first thing that you can do is try to um, mix it in sufficient amounts of water so general recommendations is um, 100 milliliters of water per gram of creatine that you're going to use and the most important thing with creatine monohydrate if you're having gi issues is that it gets diluted in the fluid that you're using so um, warm water seems to be seems to help with diluting the creatine monohydrate more it mixes better compared to cold water so if you're having trouble with the monohydrate try that first if that doesn't work the next option would be to try the other form of um, creatine and see if you if um, the gi your gi agrees better with that but other than that, I don't see any benefits with the other forms of creatine. I just chase the creatine monohydrate, just scoop it, scoop it into the mouth and just swig of water and swallow it down. I'm hardcore like that. Yeah, if, if, if like if if that works for you and you don't get any issues from that, you're 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 lucky. I'm unfortunately one of the the guys that can't stomach creatine monohydrate. I, like I've tried everything and I just cramp up with the lowest amounts of creatine and to be honest it's just not uh just not worth it uh for me so um i haven't used creatine for ages but i do use caffeine uh citrulline i've actually been using lately uh, but one thing that you actually forgot to mention is the taste of citrulline malate is horrible like yeah, it's i so bitter right yeah it's it's like 
insane how how bitter the taste is but if you use something that has um, citrus flavor or something like that it it's not too bad but it's still uh, it's not it's not delicious but it you get it down whatever it takes yeah whatever it takes <laughs> well thanks so much Juma for, for coming on today and uh, giving your insights I guess the biggest takeaway probably is that people they, they need to take it a lot slower than what they possibly would think so 10% 20% um, and for the more advanced you are the, the, the higher your training age the, the lower that percentage needs to be or closer to maintenance and really we can't force the gains and I guess just taking it slow and just being consistent and uh, slow enough so that you're able to bulk long enough so that you're not actually cutting uh, you know going from cutting the bulking all the time and spending the majority of your time in a bulking phase at that slower progress like a, a more of a, a hare versus a, kind of a rabbit or what is it a tortoise versus a rabbit approach where you're taking yeah. an extremely slow uh, but, you, but you're able to go consistently rather than saying like I'm going to bulk really fast and gain a lot of weight then I'm going to cut and then do the whole thing again and you just end up shooting yourself in the foot yeah, you sum, uh, summed it up perfectly. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on. Where's the best place that people can find you if they want to uh, reach out to you or they want to find more about your work? Uh, my um, our, our website, iraqnutrition.com, um, is the only site that we have in English. We also have a lot of infographics that we share on Instagram, um Iraqi nutrition on instagram and you can also check us out on facebook unfortunately my personal page jumaraka.com is only norwegian content so i don't think that's a, that is of interest to your listeners but definitely check out our website iraqnutrition.com and our social media well thanks again for coming on today my pleasure thanks for having me it was a pleasure to spend an hour plus chatting with you so I hope you enjoyed that episode with myself and Juma Araki. And I think that even if you're not a natural competitive bodybuilder, there's definitely some takeaways that you can implement from this paper and from this episode that we talked about. I'm going to link all of Juma's social profiles, his website, and the paper that we specifically talked about in the show notes where you can find all of the timestamps as well. But for me personally, what I think I'm going to take away from this is that I'm going to be increasing my protein intake quite a bit higher than I would have traditionally done and see how that helps me in this transition period into the off season because even though I'm eating more calories now hunger is going to be significantly higher even if body fat increases and there was a paper I think in 2013 looking at hormonal profiles of those who were post contest and leptin and ghrelin levels really didn't return back to baseline until about six months after the show even when body fat levels came up a little bit higher so i'm going to use that higher protein intake to manage my hunger as well as potentially help bring back some of that lost muscle that i lost essentially towards the end of my contest prep but again i hope you enjoyed the the show and if you did please 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 do go over and leave a rating and review and share this podcast with anybody who you feel will take some value from it and if you have any questions you can reach out to me and my email is in the show notes or you can get me on instagram at adammac192 you can just send me a dm there but i hope to see you in a future episode and thank you for sticking around